Welcome to the teaching ministry of pastors Carl and Cheryl Thomas. Our favorite verse is Habakkuk 2.14, where the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Consumed by that revelation, we are committed to recognizing, resourcing, and releasing high-impact ministries resulting in global glory, transforming lives to impact their world. We have a teaching that will impact you today. Now, let's get right into that word. First John. So today we're going to look at First John chapter 3, verse 11 to 24. And I was realizing that, you know, I've preached a couple times now out of First John, and I always seem to start by saying how messed up this book is and how kind of confusing it is. And it, it takes you up and down and all over the place. But uh, don't get me wrong. I'm actually really getting a lot out of it. <laughs> it's a good book. It really is. Uh, I'm finding myself just faith being strengthened and developed in me in, in ways that, you know, can only happen when you go over the Bible, like line upon line, precept upon precept. So it's good stuff. But to be fair, there is some confusing stuff. There's some hard stuff. There's a, a little bit of like, what, what do you mean? Like, are you, what, what are you doing to me, John? And uh, so I thought we'd look at this. First uh, John, we'll skip ahead just a, a chapter before we start, but chapter five. So I guess that's two chapters. Verse 13, he says this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Whatever else he's doing, he really wants you to know something. He really wants you to be assured. So there's a certain way to read the book that brings surety. And, uh, and there's a way that to help make sense of some of the harder things that he says in the book. Because, you know, we, we've looked at how you need to know his style. He's a little bit uh, maybe poetic. He's a little bit kind of circular. He's a little bit all over the place. We've looked at the importance of context. You know, you need to know who he's writing to and why. And I mean, you can see it here. He says, I'm writing to you who believe in the Son of God. But we also looked at chapter one where it's pretty apparent he's writing to people who don't yet believe. So he's writing to a community. And that, that's, you know, that, that's kind of typical. You know, you come to church today and there, there's all sorts of people here at all sorts of different stages in your faith. So that makes sense, right? Makes sense that he would do that. But so we looked at context, we looked at the audience, but I think there's another key here to help understand uh, what he's talking about and how to make sense of some of the harder things that he says. And he says this, he says, I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So there's, there's an element of faith. Now we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but, but John actually really believes what he's writing. He really, really does. So some of the times when you're reading what he's saying, you, you got to know that he's trying to help you to believe something and not prove something. He's not trying to test you. He's trying to help you to come into a place of faith. So sometimes faith, belief, it's the starting point to make sense of things. And that's just not the case for John. That's the case for a lot of stuff in the Bible. Faith is the starting point. You know, sometimes we say, you know, I, I don't get that yet. I'll, I'll, I'll believe you know, once I get it, once I figure it out. If I can just kind of connect the dots, then, then God, I'm in. But you know what? Sometimes you don't actually get it until you believe it, which is kind of backwards. It's, it's intuitively backwards, but it's actually really, really true. That's how it is. So Hebrews 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, and what's visible came about by what's invisible. By faith we understand. So sometimes just don't, don't underestimate the role of faith. And don't underestimate the role of John's faith when he's writing. He's believing something, and we're going to see what that is, but it's very particular. It really is. Now, I, have a, I had a professor at seminary. Uh, I'll probably get her title wrong, but she's like Reverend Canon Doctor something or other. Uh, but she's a doctor. Her name's Lizette Larson Miller. She's a world-renowned scholar, a very, very intelligent lady. And uh, she writes this in one of her books. She says... It's often surprising to reflect upon how much of our theology is based not only on philology, but also specifically on etymology. Now, that's a lot of ologies. But what she's trying to say is sometimes, you know, we can get into this place where um, we're developing our faith. When we study the Bible, when we go to church, we're getting a faith that's kind of based on where's the comma, where's the period. I love the Greek words, I love the Hebrew words just as much as anybody, but sometimes no amount of rational explanation and going around, like you can jump in the circle and go around and round and round with John, and sometimes it just doesn't make sense. You just got to stop and say, okay, I believe. I'm going to believe that, because he does. So he says, for you who believe in his name, and from that starting point of faith, 
some things make sense. Some of the uncomfortable and awkward things that he says start to make sense. So uncomfortable, awkward things like uh, what Pastor Carl talked about last week, like sin. Some of the things he says about sin, and you're just like, what? How does that make any sense to a believer who's trying to live a life based on the grace of God and not my performance? But when you read these subjects from faith as your starting point, and you know who you are in God, and you know who he is in you, you know that when, when you're reading funny stuff, like whoever is born of God cannot sin, because his seed is... When you're reading stuff like that, you realize he's not writing to trip you up, and he's also not writing to try and encourage you to kind of work harder and prove yourself. He's not doing that at all. He just actually really, really believes that if you're in Christ, Christ is in you, and that is going to do something to you. Something's going to change, and that change is going to manifest. It full-blown is, and he believes it. So from that place, from believing that. So last week we looked at uh, your nature. So there's two natures in the earth. Honestly, there's two human natures, I guess, if you, if you want to say that. Everybody's born. You're born into Adam. You don't have to stay in Adam. You can accept Jesus, become a child of God, and have a new nature. You can become a partaker of God's divine nature. And if you have that nature in you, you have the nature of God. So anything you know about God, the fact that he is love, he's holy, he's righteous, that's actually true about you when you have his nature as well. You're in Adam, you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, who Christ is is actually now who you are. It actually sounds ridiculous, but that's the thing. It's really, really good news. And it's hard to wrap your head around, but you got to. It's actually better than we think. Now, your, your nature, it's your inner self. It, it's determined by birth. So you're born in a human being, and you can be born again, a new creation, a child of God. You don't have two, right? So you don't have a... You don't have an angel on one shoulder or a devil on the other. You don't have one part of you that's good and the other part that's bad. You don't have this competing thing. Like when I first became a Christian, I grew up with this analogy where you've got like two things going on inside of you, two dogs. Whichever one you feed the most, that's the one that wins. So you're, you're living, making sure you're feeding the right dog. It's kind of weird. It's, it's hard work. It's really hard work. That's not true about you. No matter what your subjective experience is, you have one nature. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the nature of God. So here's the thing. You can still do stupid stuff. You can successfully act contrary to that nature. And when you do, a couple things are going to happen. One, it's going to feel funny. It, it should feel funny, you know, because you're doing something contrary to your nature. If you have the divine nature and you have love in your heart and all of a sudden you start, you start hating, something's going to go out. You're going to have some sort of dissonance going on, some sort of confusion in yourself. And the trick at that point is not to say the devil stole my peace or God's convicting me of my sin. No, you have an advocate who's, who's pushing you along to help you to see who your father is and who your true, what your true nature is. So the Holy Spirit's really clear. You're, you're a child of God. That's what he's doing inside of you. He's helping you to really understand that. You have a new nature, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, whatever problem you might find yourself in. It's not that you, you, know, you, you all of a sudden changed and became a bad person. It's not that you fell out of a divine nature. You still have that. So if there's any sort of dissonance, any sort of confusion, let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and say, you know, you are a child of God. You are. You absolutely are. Settle that. Now, we're going to do a little bit of negative theology today, which is what uh, John does it, so I'm going to do it too. So there's actually the really good news that you've been born again. There's two bad responses that you can make. Now, one of those responses I'm calling religious legalism. You can be like, all right, great. I'm a new creation. Fantastic. Thank you, Jesus. Now I'm going to help you, and I'm going to finish that work that you started. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pray so much. I'm going to fast. I'm going to read my Bible. All good things to do, if that's what you're inclined to do. But you can't complete on your own the good work that God did in you. So there's a fantastic starting, starting point. God puts you in Christ. Christ comes into you, reworks you, makes you something new. And then it's like you're saying, hold on, God, I can finish the job. It doesn't really work. It's really uh, a frustrating existence. It really is. And it actually leads to soul-crippling sin consciousness. So we, we heard last week about the tightrope walker. He, uh, he, he, he plunged to his death. Horrible stuff. But uh, I shouldn't laugh. Wow. That's brutal. <laughs> Ugly. 
So he died. But uh, his wife was interviewed after, as Pastor Carl was telling us. And whenever he made it across, his wife said he always thought about making it to the other side. But the time that he fell, he was preoccupied with falling. And that's actually what, you know, you're, I'm, I'm born again, I'm a believer, I'm super excited, I'm super zealous to follow Jesus. I'm going to make sure I don't sin, I'm never going to sin, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to avoid that, stay away from this and stay away from that. And the problem becomes that the more you look at something, uh, your behavior follows what you're beholding. It straight up does. So you can become sin conscious even in your effort and your zeal to really please God. You need to really focus on the fact that he's your savior, he's delivered you, and he's become your life. That's how you move forward in the new life that you have. So you're already righteous. You're already sanctified, but you are on a process. I, I hate that word. I, I hate the word process. I hate the word journey, all that kind of stuff. Anything that kind of makes me feel like I'm doing this, because the reality is I have arrived. I've arrived in Christ, straight up. Now, I used to, I don't know, Old Testament aficionados or anything, but I used to read, maybe it was because I went to a, a, a private reform school where we studied, I studied like four or five times a week where we just studied the Old Testament, and it was great. I got, you know, later on in life, I got to see Jesus, but one of the first things that I started to do when I was a Christian was I, I would I'd read the, the Old Testament, and I'd try and plot out along the journey of the Israelites and say, okay, well, that prophetically foreshadows where I am right now. I'm, I'm being tested. I'm being moved along. I'm in the wilderness. God, I'm in a wilderness journey in a wilderness season, but the reality is I've arrived. Jesus is the promised land. Now, you know, you can say, well, hold on a second, you know, they still had to fight and conquer the giants, but the reality is, even the promised land, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't fully conquered until David. David was the one who conquered the end, and, and so Israel had the full, full grasp on the promised land after King David, and Jesus is actually the son of David, right? Not the son of Moses, not the son of Joshua, he's the son of David, because he gives you a full and a complete promised land, and now your job is to manifest and administrate the life he's given you in wisdom, just like King Solomon. So... Anyways, that wasn't in my notes. I'm all confused now. <laughs> I had a God thought. Praise Jesus. But here's the thing. God's, God's committed to you uh, not just possessing his nature, but actually manifesting it, demonstrating it, expressing it. See, it's, it's, it's awesome to say I have the divine nature inside of me, and I do. But, you know, you'd think if that's the nature of God, it's going to manifest. It's going to pop out somewhere, right? It really will. And it's good stuff. So this is what I was after. The process you're on, if you feel like, man, I'm not acting like Jesus, but the Bible says I'm going to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, well, that's why he's giving you the Holy Spirit. We talked about that. We talked about the anointing. You're on a journey and a process of discovery. It's discovering Christ in you. It, it, it's all about celebrating who he is inside of you, what he's already done. So the good work, even the good work that he began in you, that he's going to see to completion, that's not a progressive journey towards sanctification. That's an unpacking of what you're doing. That's an unpacking of who you are. So you see in the Gospels, even if you look in, in Luke, there's like a 10-chapter chunk, 10, 10 chunk of the book of Luke where you see Jesus. He's, he's kind of on this journey on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to destiny. He did the journey for you. And then he sent the disciples out in a backwards pattern towards that through journey. Now he's saying, now you take what you have and share it everywhere. So it's all good stuff. It's good. You're unpacking what you are. The other bad uh, response, actually, let's get back to the sermon. Selfish carelessness. That's kind of the opposite of uh, religious legalism. Or is it? It's still kind of selfish, I guess. But uh, that's, that's where you just run around and you're like, yeah, what I do doesn't matter. Who cares? And you know what? In a certain sense, this, hopefully this doesn't offend you, in a certain glorious sense, that's true. You know, your, your performance, is, it's, on, it's on Jesus. But what you do really does matter. It impacts people. It impacts yourself. Sin's a problem. You know, what, whatever you think about judgment and God judging people, here, here's a thought. Sin actually has within itself its own inherent judgment. There's a punishment in sin. You know, it's not even like God needs to say, hey, I'm going to zap you for that. You do that, and you're going to hurt yourself. You do that, and it's going to hurt you. So sin is wrong. It really is. And it's, and it's not just, it's bad. It's not just the stuff that will get you arrested, or it's not just the stuff that will, you know, ruin your reputation, destroy your social capital. It's not, that, it's not always that stuff. It's even the stuff that's like, man, that person really offends me. 
and you, and you just kind of let that stuff build up. It's the small stuff. It's the lots of little foxes that spoil the vine. It really is. So, so sin's wrong. Don't take a, yeah, whatever, who cares kind of attitude. No, because the seed of God inside of you doesn't have that attitude. And if you're in touch with it and in tune with it, you're going to be moving towards, towards love. So sin's wrong, a little bit of a rhyme. God's life in you is strong. It will have a manifestation. The message itself, it has a prophetic faith imparting power to produce in you the thing that it sends out to accomplish. So that's, that's the assumption that Paul and John are writing from. So that was a really big preamble to say this. John really believes what he's writing. He really believes that it's going to produce something in it. And the fact that the man, the seed of God is in you, it's going to, he's confident. He's not saying, hey, work hard, strive. No, no, this is what it's going to do in you. So have that same faith. Let that same faith in you awaken when you read and you study John today and uh, at home this week or whatever you do. So today's verses, 1 John 3, 11 to 24, those are just some highlights because I couldn't fit it all in a couple of things. So. But I'm going to read it. You know what? I come from an uh, Anglican church background, and uh, I really like this. There's, there's the, the liturgical churches where, actually, you know, you can go to church on a Sunday in any of those churches, and you're going to hear the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the gospel preached. You're going to hear the Bible. It's kind of cool. Something powerful about the Word of God being uh, read together. But anyways, I'm going to read it. If you got your Bible or your phone or something, just uh, follow along. This is the New King James Version. But it says this, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He, will, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? This is a good question. My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth. We shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. That's really good news too. And he knows all things. Now, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And we ask whatever we ask of him, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That's a religious tripwire. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. Amen. Or whatever. He blessed him. So that was a really long preamble to actually get to this point. And what I've got left in whatever time there is left is a three-point sermon thanks to Pastor Cheryl's help, uh, where we're looking at what I've called 3M love. 3M love. It's not very uh, innovative or creative or anything like that, but uh, there's 3M, so 3M innovation. It was supposed to be a joke, but... Oh, I did it! (laughs) Yes! (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's good. All right, so the first M is the message. What did they hear from the beginning? This is the message, what you've heard from the beginning. Well, what did they hear from the beginning? Personally, I think it's John 13, 34, where Jesus, John was there when Jesus says, a new commandment I've given you, that you love one another as I've loved you. As I loved you. That's going to be really important, the as I love you part. So last week, we talked about sin. And Pastor Carl was saying, hey, if God's seed is in you, when you act out of that nature, you're not going to sin. God, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There's no darkness in the seed of God that's in you. There's no darkness in the nature of God that's in you. Instead, see, you're going to do something else. We're not just going to run around not doing something. There's a flip side to this. You're not going to sin, but you are, what you are going to do is you're going to love. See, righteous living, it's not rule-keeping. It's really not. It's love. 
the manifestation of the divine nature in you, it doesn't make you a great law keeper, rule keeper. It makes you a great lover of people. Straight up, because God is love. So the message is love. Precisely because of your union with him, that means that you too are love at your very core. It's true. It really is true. It's your nature to love. It is your nature. You might not feel it. You might not believe it. You might be like, oh my goodness, I want to be more like Jesus. How do I do that? How do I, oh, just relax. You are one with him who is perfect love. You really are. So like we looked at last week, Romans 6 verse 18, you are a slave to righteousness. You can't help but do good things. You really can't. You actually love. You act holy, whatever that is. You act righteous out of your new nature. But here's the thing, when you, when you treat love or peace or joy or kindness or any of these things as like virtues that you can kind of add to your life by, let's say, practice, by better thinking, by discipline, by getting out of bed early at three in the morning and praying on really sharp carpet so your knees bleed, that doesn't work. It really does I can tell you that doesn't work. And when you do that, when, when you treat these things, the, the fruit of who God is inside of you, when you treat that as like a, a little virtue that you can kind of just add on to yourself and develop a little bit here, and I'm going to work on myself, and today's, this week I'm focusing on patience, I'm going to develop and add to my life patience. When you do that, you actually effectively quench the divine nature within you. You really do. You are love. You are these things by nature. You really are. So the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you're actually one with that spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You are so connected and intermingled. I can't even do with my fingers the kind of thing that you have with the Holy Spirit. You're so one with him. Those things are so a part of you. They really are. But if you keep thinking that there are things out there that you need to grab hold of, lay on, and then just kind of bring into your life a little bit, not going to work. Really not going to work. What's going to happen is you're going to end up focused on your religious activity to bring that virtue into your life. And then you're going to start wondering, worrying about how much of it's not in your life. No, you're one with the Spirit of God. Embrace it and, and enjoy it. Really have fun with it. So that being said, the question that would be going through my mind if somebody was saying this stuff to me is, well, you're telling me that I'm part of, uh, you know, I got the divine nature inside of me. I'm one with God. I'm going to love. I can't help it. Well, yeah, I can. Let me prove to you. You know, look at what I did this week. I didn't love. Or maybe there's somebody in your world who you know is a Christian, a brother or a sister, and you're like, they're not loving me. What the heck? They should be. Maybe they're not even Christians. Maybe they're not even saved. That would be brutal. Don't do that. There's a lot of serious faces. I'm joking. <laughs> Jen's always like, I can't tell when you're joking. I'm like, wow. It's a joke. Don't do that. <laughs> but here's the thing. You, you can act as though you don't possess the nature, even though you do. And when that happens, that person who's not loving you, you who's not loving, the fact of the matter is it doesn't change the fact that you or they actually do have the divine nature in them, and they do have the ability to love because they're joined together with love. Now, what's going on in that person's world, in your world? A little bit of dissonance. A little bit, you're not going to be settled. That person's not going to be settled. And sometimes the loving thing to do is to be like, hey, that's not really loving. We should talk about this. Because the problem is sometimes you can misinterpret that dissonance and that confusion, and you can start to say, oh, the devil's trying to get me, or this person's a problem in my life and in my world. And the reality is that lack of peace you have is just because you're not living congruently and coherently with who you are. There's something that's blocking the expression of who you are. As powerful as the nature of God is inside of you, it does take a little bit of agreement. So there's this, you can be deceived. There's deception. There's lies that you can buy into and believe. And if you do that, see, the Bible talks about sin, and it says don't be deceived by the, or hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It hardens your heart. It doesn't change your nature, but it can harden your heart and your perspective. So there's hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for somebody in your world who's not loving you because they're one with God, and that nature, it is going to express itself. It really is. You love by nature. And that's really, really super important when we look at M number two, which is the model. Love as a model. So negative theology. 
what not to do. He says, love one another. Not like Cain. Not like that guy. He was of the wicked one. He murdered his brother. That's crazy, eh? It's interesting because uh, first glance, you're like, what are you talking about? Don't love like him? Like, are, are these people so basic that they need to be told that murder isn't love? Right? Like, of course he didn't love. But I think there's something a little bit more profound going on there and uh, in the story of Cain and Abel. Now, it's actually a really good story. It's really popular right now. There's so many different things that you can talk about, but we're going to pull something out of that story, and you can find it in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, and uh, follow along if you like, but I'm going to read it this time out of the ESV. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. I don't know if this is the ESV, actually. I don't know how the ESV reads, but his face fell. He got depressed. His countenance had fallen. Other versions say he was angry and depressed. And God said to Cain, hey, if you do well, if you do the right thing, aren't you going to be happy? Aren't you going to be accepted? Sin's crouching at your door. His desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain goes from this conversation with God, and he goes and he speaks to his brother, and we're in a field, they're in a field, and Cain rose up against his brother Abel and, Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, there are a whole bunch of stuff there, but what I want to draw your attention to is this. Abel, it says, was a shepherd. Cain was a worker of the ground, sheep farmer, crop farmer, two different things going on. Now, this is the important thing, I think. When Cain brought his sacrifice, what he was effectively doing, or actually it's not even sacrifice, it says offering. When he brought his offering to the Lord, what he was effectively doing was bringing the best of his works. He was bringing his best effort. I don't know if you guys have ever uh, tried to grow your own food. You know, it's, it, when you try and do this, it's a little bit different than, you know, just having a couple of tomato plants in the backyard or something. When you're trying to grow food for, like, for yourself and your family, that's hard work. It really is. I know all about that. I watched Jen do it, and it looks tiring. <laughs> she is all sweaty and sunburnt, and I'm just like, man, that must be tough. She does. She's really great at it. She's got a good green thumb. It's hard work, though. It really is. She will attest to that. It's, it's hard work. You got you to gotta get the soil right. You got to dig your holes. You got to put the thingy in the ground and put some water on it and then pull out the bad plants. You got to do all that stuff. And this isn't to negate if you're a sheep farmer here. I don't mean to denigrate you, but for back in the day, I'm sure for Abel, he, he found a girl sheep, a boy sheep. He said, here you go. Know each other. A little while later, there's a couple sheep, or one, I don't even know what they do, one or two sheep. And, uh, and Abel would have gone, okay, that, that one looks good. That's the best one. Here we go. So this is my reading. I, I think what, what's, what's going on here is Cain, Cain's bringing the fruit of his own labor. Abel knew enough. He knew enough about God to say, you know what, I'm going to bring something that I didn't work for. I'm going to bring something that's not the fruit of my own uh, labor, my own works. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the lamb. I'm going to bring the life of another. Cain, on the other hand, is like, nope, this is my best work. This represents everything that I am. This is the best of me. And he brought it. And I think, personally, that does sound a little bit like religion. You know, when you try and bring your best to God, you know, when you try and work your hardest and you, and you bring the combined effort of everything that you're able to squeeze out of your life that might look like a godly virtue that God might be happy with, Maybe it looks like, you know, hey, God, I'm your servant. I promise you I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. God, I will. I will. I will. I'll do this. I'll do that for you. Look at how good I did this. Look at how good I did that. I think that might represent what Cain did. Abel, on the other hand, had a view of God's grace where he just brought, he brought to, to God the lamb. He just brought the lamb. 
Now, God, he's always after grace. That's it. His heart's always been grace. He didn't have a change of mind at the cross. He's always been about uh, giving people what they don't deserve. He's, always, he's never been into religion. Even, even the stuff in the Old Testament, there's, some, there's Jesus looking comfort, God conference. There's something else going on uh, when, when you know, there's all that religious ritual and stuff. Because God's never accepted your performance, and he never will. He's always accepted Jesus. He always has, and he always will. Now, Cain, Cain has this conversation with God, and God basically explains this and lays it out to him. And, uh, and Cain, in turn, gets mad. Cain's mad that God's not happy with his best efforts. He's angry. And he goes and he kills his brother. And that's what religion does. Religion will make you mad. It really, really will. That's what happened to Jesus, right? It was the religious leaders that killed Jesus. You can read this time and time again in, in the book of Acts. You know, the people, they got whipped into a frenzy. I'm sure they were under some sort of spirit, and so were the religious leaders, but they were the ringleaders. They're saying, get them. They're saying, hey, it's expedient that one die for all. It was out of their envy that they had Jesus crucified. What if their place is taken? It, religion will get you mad, and, and, and you might be like, yeah, that's okay. That, that's not me. I, I'm not getting mad. I'm not murdering anybody, but there's different expressions of this kind of religious anger. You know, what if, uh, here, here's a personal scenario, what if your, your religious anger looks like something like, hey God, I, I've prayed for this, I fasted, I prayed every day this week, I've fasted twice a month for six years, and this still isn't happening, God, I'm angry. There's a little bit of religious anger. Now, don't get, don't get me wrong, too. Like, there's, there's legit frustrations. God's big enough to handle your frustration. He really is. He can, he can handle your God, what the heck kind of questions. So if you have him, bring him. He's okay with that. But there's also, you know, it can flip over into that kind of accusatory tone where it's like, God, you're not as good as you say you are. Those kind of things. Or maybe religious anger can look something like this. That guy, no, I'm trying to point to nobody, not you, Joshua. But that guy <laughs> makes me mad. That guy gets what he prays for. That girl, she just, she doesn't pray, she doesn't fast, she doesn't do this, that, or the other thing. I think I might have heard her swear one time, and I saw what was in her recycling bin. But she still gets what she prays for. What? That's the beginnings of a little bit of loving like Cain. That's the beginning of a little bit of, uh, what the heck, God, I'm angry, and I'm angry at so-and-so because they make it look so easy. They didn't really do anything. They just believed. Ooh, awesome. They got their prayer answered, and I'm working so hard. There's a little bit of religious anger, right? He's saying, don't do that. Don't love like Cain. Don't love out of religious duty and performance. Don't love where you're, you're bringing your own best. We'll explain that a little bit when we get to the next M, but here's the thing about love, and this is uh, something I think you got to be a little bit careful about, is the world's hungry for love. It really is. And whatever cultural critiques you have, like we live in a materialistic, narcissistic, uh, selfish culture, which probably, yeah, but in spite of all that, there's this cry out there in the world saying love. There really is. And, and, and I think that that's okay. That's actually really, really good. It really is in the church. Like not just this church, but the church broad. We're, uh, we're becoming more and more awakened to the reality that God is love and that we need love. It's not about legalism. I mean, I, I hope this is okay to say. You can go into the most legalistic restricting church environment, and you're still going to hear things like it's about relationship and not rules. Now, there's going to be a whole bunch of rules about the relationship, but you're going to hear that because we're, we're being enlightened to the reality that God is love. We really are. But here's the thing, the, the subtlety that exists in all of this and our enlightenment towards love as a culture, as the people of God. Here's the thing, you can, you can value the place of love so much that you run hard after love in the wane of Cain and you make it your religious duty. You make it your obligation and you start loving out of religious obligation or some sort of idealistic idea. And the problem with that is that when you do that, when you, when you offer your best, when you love your best, when it's a duty, when it's an obligation, when it's out of an idealistic mentality that once I start doing this, the whole world's going to change, 
once you've done your duty, you have an expectation that somebody's going to respond back to you as if something now needs to happen. Somebody owes you something. Hey, God, I loved you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I love my neighbor as myself. Now perform for me. We might not use the word perform for me, but we might be like, hey, God, now you owe me. I loved. You owe me something. Or, or you'll put that, God has broad shoulders. Don't do that to him, but he can handle it. But when we do that to other people, it's also damaging. Right? When you put an expectation on somebody, say, I loved you, and I'm loving, here's one, I'm going to love you into the kingdom. Right? I'm loving you, I'm loving you as my religious duty, which really is another way to say I'm tolerating you being around me because I have an expectation that eventually you're going to change. That's not cool. That's not love. No, the religious manifestation of love, the, the, the manifestation of love that's, that's born out of duty, it's going to lead to hatred. And bitterness, because it's rooted in what am I gaining? What am I going to get? Now, you might say, I'm never going to kill anybody. Hopefully you don't. I never have. Don't plan on it. But Jesus said, didn't Jesus say, and John said it too, if you hate somebody in your heart, it's like murder. So you might not actually ever kill somebody, but he's saying there's something, something in your heart. So guard your heart from this kind of religious striving wrapped up as idealistic love. Don't love like Cain. Don't do that. That's not good. It's really not good. Now, there is a model of love. He said, not like Cain, but there is a model of love that he does demonstrate. The real model of love is Jesus. And he says this, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, sisters too. The thing about that is he's not just saying, this is, this is, if you'll indulge me, this is my Greek word for the day. Uh, if he wanted to say you'd take a bullet for somebody, he would have used the word bios, your biological life. But he actually said something different. He said something that incorporates your, your biological life, I think, because you can't separate one from the other. But he uses the word suke, which is your soul, your life. It's your, your person's distinct identity, your individual personality. He says you'll lay that down for your brothers. So sometimes loving people doesn't mean you'll take a bullet for them, but laying down your life for somebody might mean that, uh, here's a scenario, you, you hurt me. You hurt me. You owe me this. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to love and I'm going to let it go. Not out of weakness, not out of insecurity, but I'm actually going to lay down my right to have what you actually legit owe me. I'm going to lay down my right to have you reconcile to me, and I'm going to love you. That is just as much laying down your life as actually taking a bullet for somebody. And I'd argue for a lot of people, it's even harder. See, Paul said it too. He's like, you know, you can, you can give your body to the flames to be burned. You can give everything you have to the poor. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. See, there's a, there's a, a, a manifestation of sacrifice. I'm giving my life for you, but it, it, it looks loving, but it's not. Sometimes it's, now I got you in my back pocket. And that's just not cool. That's really not cool. So when he says, lay down your life, it's something a little bit more than just take a bullet for me. But here's another thing. In a, in a very literal sense, you actually have already laid down your life as well. Jesus laid down his life. And when he did that, he brought you into himself and you died with him and you've been raised up together with him so that the life that you now have is his life. You live, yet he lives in you. It's a bit of a mystery. It kind of throws the rules for, for human personhood out the window because you're not just you anymore. You're you and God. You guys are together. You're one. And that's really, really good news. But that's really important when we talk about love as the model. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to get our Bible and highlight something in, in, in the scriptures and say, okay, this is how Jesus loved. Now I'm going to go copy that act. You know, that, that would be weird. You could, you could run around spitting in people's faces. That's not loving. That's weird. Jesus didn't get away with it. Maybe not you. So it's not just about copying him in the sense that we see his act. He's the model. I'm going to copycat the model. No, here's the model that Jesus is for you. He's my example in so much as what I'm seeking to emulate is living out of the spirit within and out of union. So when I see Jesus loving people, when I see Jesus doing loving acts, I see a man anointed by God with the Holy Spirit, going around and loving out of his union with his Father. 
And it looks like love, and what you see on the outside is love, but what's actually really happening is a manifestation of the life of his father that is love. So the fact that there's sacrifice going on, the fact that Jesus died on a cross, that wasn't just an act. That was him expressing the nature of the Father. See, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The nature of the Father is to give his life for you too. Jesus isn't saving you from the Father. The Father was also in Christ laying down his life. It's just the way it is. That's who Jesus is. So when you look at him as your cup, what would Jesus do? Well, this is what Jesus would do. Father, what are you doing? That's what Jesus does. Jesus looks in, sees the Holy Spirit, and acts and flows out of that union. That's your, that's your example. Now, that's all a bit much. Third M. I was going to say mushroom. For real. And some of you are like, what? I was going to try and make a little joke, but then I thought, nah, should I, should not? Caught in the middle. Uh, see, I was making a, a video this week, a small group video. I, I got to explain it now. I was making a small group video with Sue Hurley, and she, I'm just about ready to, to start taping, and I always look for her to put up her hand, and she's like, now remember, Zach, you got to be interesting. I'm like, what? <laughs> I was like, what the heck, Sue? God, ouch, that hurt. <laughs> She's like, you know, like on tape, it's just you. And she's always telling me I've got a big beard and nobody can see my mouth move. So it's just like. <laughs> oh, I love you, Sue. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, this is my attempt at adding something interesting. But I saw this ridiculous joke. It's M. And it says, uh, I, I go something like, why did the mushroom go to the party? Because he was a fun guy. <laughs> fun guy. <laughs> That's my attempt at being interesting, Sue. God's a fun guy, too, so it's all good. The third M, it's manifestation. And it's, uh, it's actually something that we've already been talking about. The manifestation of love. So 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And of course, his commandment was, as I have loved you. See, that's the thing about loving as he loves, is it's his love inside of you. And I honestly believe that that commandment there, that as I loved you, that's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. That's the difference between law and grace. It's always been about love. You know, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, well, the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So the law is actually about love too. It's about some weird stuff like shellfish and clothes, but actually it's about love. So when he says, as I've loved you, look what Paul said about this. He said, the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to you. It was. If you've got the Spirit of God, you've got the love of God. It's been poured out to you and you can share it. There really is, let me say this, no excuse. God's in us. We, we can love. We really can. And you know what? The time when you really get to lean into this the most is the time that you don't want to. The time that it feels the, the least true. You know, you're sitting there, oh, that person over there. That's when you lean into the love of God. And actually, he's faithful. And you're going to find at that moment that there is a flood and a bubbling and a flow and a rush of God inside of you. And you're going to have more than enough love to meet that need. You really will. Here's the thing, though. I keep saying, here's the thing. Here's another thing. Because the love of God is in you and it's real, it really is real. We're not talking about like a nice thought. We're not, oh, that's cute. God loves you. That's fantastic. No, he really does. And that love is actually really a real thing inside of you. And the impact it has on you is something more than just, I feel good when I tell myself he loves me. There's an actual substance called the love of God. It is God. And because it's real, it's going to manifest in very real ways. Right up there. First John three seventeen. he says, Whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's the love of God, and it's going to be concretely seen, visible, demonstrable. There's going to be an expression somehow. See, you can't get away with saying, I love you, man. It's all good. I love you. I'm full of God's love, but it actually never showing up in a real tangible way. You can't do that. 
And, and actually, God's life inside of you won't, won't let it just stop there. He's going to talk to you about it. But he's also not challenging you to rise up in your religious works and love out of duty and follow the way of Cain. He's not saying that either. John just really, really, really believes this stuff. He actually really believes. He's so confident that God's nature in you is going to shine out of you. He believes it. And we need to believe it about ourselves. And maybe a little bit harder, but we got to believe this about the people in our world and in our lives too. You have to believe it's going to manifest. You have to believe it's going to show up. And we got to start speaking to each other and calling it out of each other. That's the prophetic anointing on this guy called John the Revelator. He's got an ability to speak and to write in a way that says, hey, this is who you are. Let's see it. Show me the money. It's really good. So when you do this, when you're living out of the life and the love of God inside of you, it says that the effect and the impact of that is actually going to be that it's going to assure your heart before God. When you know and you, when you know you're manifesting and demonstrating the love of God, it brings a peace and a surety in your world. And it might not be the kind of surety that's like, uh, I'm having a, an identity crisis and I don't know who God is anymore. And not, you know, not those kind of questions like, God, are you real? But maybe there's questions in your life that you need surety over, like, God, is this your will? Or here, here's one that I hear often right now, actually. It's, it's, I'm a believer, and I'm praying, and this isn't happening. What is going on? Am I okay? Am I really a believer? God, are, are we good here? You know, if you've got that kind of anxiety, that kind of questioning going on, there, there's an ability to assure your heart through the love of God being manifested in you. It's not a, a, a works-based kind of love-based assurance program, though. He's not saying, hey, measure your love meter, and if it's out of 10, you can feel good about yourself today. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is the expression, the demonstration, the manifestation of God in you, it's going to be love. And when you see it, when you feel it, when you flow in it, you know it's not you. You can't take credit for it. You don't get God points for it. You know, you're, you're kind of in that tough situation. You need that kind of surety. Here's the surety that God's working in your life. You're loving people. You, you feel a genuine affection for people. There is the demonstration and the manifestation of God at work in your life. Love. You love people. But then it gets a little bit better, I think. If you still are like, well, where's the love? I don't feel it. I'm having these kind of subjective identity problems or something like that. And your heart still condemns you. You can't find the love. You've still got these problems, and you're still like, God, what's going on? I keep doing this. I keep doing that. Here's a problem. There's a problem. What's going on in my life? And you can't let love assure you. Here, here's the thing about this. It says God is greater than your heart, and he knows all things. He's greater than your heart, and he knows all things. Well, what's one of those things that he knows? It's this. He knows that you're a child of God. Your subjective experience, you might not be feeling it, but he knows it. He knows what's true about you, that you're still having a hard time believing. So you can lean into and rest in the fact that what he says about you is true, not necessarily your subjective experience. Believe it, and your feelings are going to follow, for sure. You can have confidence in God, but what he says about you, what he's done about for you, and in you, and to you, and it's greater than whether you feel it. it really, now, you will feel it, but when you don't, Lean into the fact that you are a child of God. Amen. You know that you are. See, he's really not trying to get us to test and to prove our, our love meter. Actually, love is, is I believe, it's, it's the ultimate expression of a faith-inspired rest. See, here's a good way to live. Wake up in the morning grateful. Wake up in the morning and your, your heart, the, the expression of God inside of you is, who do I get to love today? I get to enjoy God loving me today, and I get to share that with other people today. And when that's your orientation in life, you're, you're in peace. You're in rest. See, Paul said it this way in Galatians 5, 6. He said, faith expresses itself through love, not like passivity, not uh, sitting back and I just believe... If you believe, you're going to love. And that's really a peaceful, restful way to live. That's 3M. 3M love. That's the message. The model and the manifestation. And uh, the mushroom. But honestly, take this away today. God is committed to see you, not just possess his nature, but express it. When you express it, it's going to look like love. 
And that process, that journey is one of unpacking who you are. It's one of unpacking what he's already done inside of you. He loves you like crazy. If you're, a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he lives inside of you, and you are empowered to love. You really are. And not only to love other people, but say, let's just say for a minute you're having a hard time knowing God's love for yourself. His spirit is inside of you. He is testifying to you that you are a child of God. You can hear it right now. You really can. You can feel the love of God in your own heart right now, just as surely as you have the spirit of God. He loves you, and he's crazy about you. Stand up. Well, if there's anybody here today, I just want to give everybody the chance here. If there's somebody here today who's like, uh, that sounds good. That God sounds good. I want to know the love of Jesus. I want to know and live an empowered life to love other people. You know, if there's somebody here who's, who's never said yes to Jesus before and had the experience of knowing that he loves you, of knowing and feeling that love, that very real, very subjective experience that I promise you, you can have right now because he is so, so, so willing to testify to you and to reveal himself to you. If that's you today and you're like, I, I would like to know that Jesus, I just want to give you a chance. So I'm going to ask everybody if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. And if, there, if that's you here today, just I'm going to count to three and ask you just to raise up your hand nice and high so that we can see it. And, and what we're going to do is we're all going to pray together. So if that's you here today, ready? One, two, three. Thank you. All right. Guys, we're all going to pray together, okay? Everybody nice and loud. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you gave your life for me. I invite you into my heart. Help me to know that you love me. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, bless you. If you did that today, somebody's going to probably come tap your shoulder and just be like, hey, We'd like to do this journey together and help you make sense of what just happened in your world. But everybody else, let's pray together. I pray for everyone and I ask that today, Father God, you would give us by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability, the capacity to know the love of God that passes knowledge. That together as a body, together in our families, this week, God, in everything that we do, Lord, we ask that we would know the love of God, the length, the width, the breadth, the depth of it, that we would be filled with the fullness of God and manifest your love, your goodness, and your power everywhere we go. We bless you, Lord. We thank you so much. Let everybody hear, let everybody feel that they are deeply, deeply loved by you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Bless you guys. Enjoy your Sunday.